Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Amy Kaufman is a New York Times and internationally best-selling author of 19 published books, and her multi-award-winning work is published in nearly 30 languages. Her latest book is The Isles of the Gods, and she is here today with me, Alison Tate, talking about creativity, talking about conjuring up worlds, talking about consistency for the Words and Nerds podcast, because Amy, we are in takeover mode. I hope you are ready to leap forth into the breach. I am. No one's here to supervise us. We're going to do what we want. We can do whatever we like. All right. So let's start, though, by um, talking about your brand spanking new book, The Isles of the Gods. Tell me all about it. I need to know every detail. Well, maybe not every detail, but I need to know enough about it to go and run out and buy it immediately. Oh, I love this book. It's it's my favourite thing that I have ever written. And That's exciting. It's, it's just fun. So I actually started writing it in 2013 and I put oh. it on hold because I wasn't good enough yet. I knew what I wanted it to be and I couldn't make it that. So I, you know, I kept pushing it back. And it was actually during lockdown when I was like, you know, what I need more than anything in the world right now is fun. And this book is fun. So it's a romantic fantasy adventure or romanticy is the new word we're all using and it has slumbering gods and forgotten temples it has speakeasies and gangsters and adventures on the high seas and it is about a girl who is a sailor and a prince is snuck aboard her ship for a mission that will prevent a war if he can pull it off he is very annoying and he is very annoyingly handsome and if she ends up needing to save him in order to save the world. so Right. See, the thing I love about you is um, I I have interviewed you before a couple of times and every single time you are able to succinctly in three sentences or less tell me what the entire book is about, which is no mean feat. And I wonder, like, for example, the tagline for the Isles of the Gods is glamour, grit and gangsters dens, which is just like I'm right there for that immediately. Mm-hmm. Do you come up with that stuff first or after you've written the book? Uh, for me, definitely after I've written the book. I have a strong sense before I write of what the book is going to be about and, you know, what is going to appeal to people, but it's often in the writing of it that I find the little turns of phrase that will help me describe it to people. And yeah. I'm also always interested to, you know, my my critique partners are authors and when I hand the manuscript over to them, usually when it comes back, 
there'll be one or two things that they've all picked up on that they're particularly excited about. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, sometimes it's what I was excited about. Sometimes it's not. And that's always interesting to me. That helps me know what a reader might be into. So you said that you sort of started with the idea back in 2013. Yeah. What were you not? So I guess what am I trying to say here? What were you not good enough at back then to be able to make this work? Like why did you think to yourself, I'm not I'm not ready for this yet? What was it about the book that made you step back and go, I need, this needs more time? I think it was the fact that when you read the book, it comes off as kind of, you know, a rip-roaring adventure in a cool new world with a squad who banter and it feels quite streamlined and it's actually immensely complex. It's got five different points of view. You need to learn who all of those five narrators are. You need to learn all about this world that has a bunch of different countries, you know, two in particular that are getting ready to go to war with each other. You need to learn about their pantheon of gods, not just who they are, but how they operate. You need to learn a whole magic system. And then you need to learn all the stuff about world building, like how does the magic mix with the technology? And you need to learn all of that pretty quickly. And Mm. although when you read the book, you know, the feedback I hear from people is, oh, I just jumped into the world. I really, you know, I got it. I knew what was going on. I knew who I was cheering for. I knew where I was going. And, you know, the adventure just carried me along, which is exactly obviously what I was going for. It's the, the skill for me was in figuring out how to weave all of that in, in a way that brought you on board without you feeling like I was sort of educating you or bringing you on board. So Yeah, okay. So without dumping massive wadges of backstory in my face to tell me what was going on. Okay. Yeah. And that does require a lot of skill, doesn't it, to kind of weave all of that into the story as the story unfolds. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, in any, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, cooking or dancing or painting or anything creative, Just because it looks simple doesn't mean it was. And for me, I think I realized quite quickly it wasn't going to be simple and that I didn't know how to do it yet. So, you know, I went away and I wrote a whole bunch of multi-POV books and books with big complex worlds and I got better and better at it until I was ready for this one. And how did you know you were ready? Like what was the point that made you think, right, it's time for the Isles of the Gods? Gods. I mean, I don't know if you ever know you're ready. I, I have a theory that, you know, Every writer out there has moments during the creation of any book where they think, oh, no, I've just realised it's terrible and I'm (laughs) terrible and everything's terrible. And that if you don't do that, then you're not actually pushing at your own boundaries and getting better and better. So, you know, I mean, I didn't know, but I, I thought perhaps I was and also the story had just really begun to loom up in my mind and feel ready. So in I went. All right. So. Where do you begin then when you're starting your novel? Like the worlds in your novels are extraordinary. Like they're vivid and they're, they're as you say, like you're immediately immersed in them without necessarily knowing. It's like you've kind of, you know, taken a dive into the pool without even realising that you're there. It's, is the world the first thing that you do? Do the characters come first? Like how do you kind of go about constructing a book? Look, it's sort of a braiding process for me in that the world will come first, but not in great detail. And once I have an idea of what the world might be like, and I mean, we are talking, you know, a world 
that is sort of, you know, a little bit 1920s-ish. It's got tall ships, it's got radios, it's got cars and horses and carriages. Then the next question for me is always, okay, who's the protagonist of a story in that world? Who has room to change and grow and learn and affect, you know, events? And then I start building my characters and then I build more of the world through discovering the characters and in order to serve the characters. And they are then in turn affected by the world. So I sort of, I hop back and forth. I I know some writers build an entire Bible for the world before they get any further, but I, yeah, I I see it as a sort of a braiding process. The characters affect the world and the world affects the characters. Did you know that you needed five points of view right from the beginning or did that sort of you know, unfold as the story unfolded? Oh, there were actually six at the beginning. Uh, I look back now and I'm like, Ames, what were you, what were you, <laughs> what thinking, were you thinking, girl? <laughs> uh, originally the, uh, the annoyingly handsome prince actually had a bodyguard and I, I wrote a whole draft with him in and I sent that draft off to a few of my critique partners and, and the first two came back and I suppose I should say for context the first two were C.S. Pacat and Marie Lou and when they both come back <laughs> singing the same song to you okay yep you've re- you've got to listen because these are two authors you know who know what they're doing and they both came back and said yeah but what does the bodyguard do like apart yeah. from be hot which he's doing very effectively like what's he for and we started to explore the idea that if he wasn't there then our sailor girl would have to step up into this very unaccustomed position of needing to keep the prince safe herself, which Mm -hmm. she did not know how to do and she did not want to do. And it was like, ah, yeah, there it is. Now we're away to the races. Yeah, okay. So the key to unlocking that mm. was actually dropping a character, not adding one. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And how do you keep track, like you mentioned before, you know, like the sort of Bible idea, how did you how do you keep track of the details of your world as you write? Oh, uh, look, I this is if there are any aspiring writers listening and I know there are, like do as I say, not as I do on this one. <laughs> I just I'm the worst, Alison. I'm so bad. I don't. I just write it and I, I'm capable of holding stupid amounts of information in my head. Mm. But it just all stays in my head. And then uh, I will, one of the things I'm good at is as I read through a book, I'm good at picking inconsistencies. So I'll write the whole thing and then I'll just read it multiple times and think, oh, no, no, that doesn't quite jive with what I said earlier and change one of those two things. Uh, But I just, I iterate it and I change it and I, I mean, I'm drafting book two at the moment. Boy, do I wish that I was clever enough to have a Bible, but it's just, Oh, okay. So that was going to be I my don't. next question. Um, when it goes mm. to the next book, have you then by that stage created some kind of record of what's going on? No. No, wouldn't that be a good idea? It no, good I idea. haven't. And and yet, you know, 19 books in it, it seems like I, I've sort of just accepted that I'm apparently not going to do that, uh, <laughs> despite knowing that it's a good idea. And I always think it's better to work with what's realistic. <laughs> It's so. true. But do you have you had a situation where, you know, because I know how um, you you may not keep track of the details, but one thing I know for sure is that readers really keep track of the details, like to the point mm. where I'll go and do school talks and I'll be asked about, you know, 
book four of the Mapmaker Chronicles, which I wrote six years ago, and mm-hmm. they'll be very specifically discussing a detail with me, which I have no memory of, none yeah. whatsoever, mm-hmm. and I wrote the book. Um, so have you ever had a situation where, you know, readers have pointed out that your character's eyes have changed colour or, you know, any of that sort of, any of those sort of small details? I mean, no, that's what my copy editors are for and, <laughs> and they're amazing. And look, I I famously, I am told by my publishers, I, I don't think they're being nice, I think they're being honest, hand in really clean manuscripts to copy editing. I don't tend to get much fact stuff picked up. I don't tend to get many discrepancies picked up. I think I'm just, for better or for worse, I'm good at holding it in my head. Yeah. And, you know, if I could externalise it, I could probably free that space up for something more useful, but you know, my system is my system. Uh, so I don't tend to get picked up by the copy editor much. And every so often the copy editor will ask a question and um, they'll pick up a sort of a, a vestigial tale of of something that once existed in the manuscript and isn't there anymore. Yeah. But, you know, and, and they're wonderful at that. But, I mean, I, I suppose if I ever get really bit in the butt by it, maybe I'll change my my ways. But... You know, certainly nineteen I think, books in, it's going all right. <laughs> well, and I mean, I certainly have the um the the same experience you do, particularly when I'm speaking to middle grade audiences about yeah. the world between blinks. I mean, you know, my co-author Ryan and I joke that if we ever do a book three, what we're going to do is figure out the plot, and then we're going to just round up a whole group of middle grade readers and tell it to them, and they can ask us four hundred and seventy five questions <laughs> and pick holes in it, and then it'll be perfect because. Yeah, I've never been caught yet, but every time I go, I'm like, this could be the day because they'll be like, I'm wondering if this happened and then that happened and then the other thing happened. Yeah. And you know, on page 49 where you said blah, blah, Mm -hmm. what do you think about this? And you'll be standing there going, what did I say? And I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, how much yeah. do you draw on and sort of warp real world details and experiences to create a fantasy world? Like are you drawing on history and folklore and, you know, things that happen and then sort of like oh, skewing yeah. them slightly? Absolutely. Yes, I am. Um, if anyone is hearing this question and going, oh, this is the thing I'm a nerd about, then uh, on one of my podcasts, Pub Dates, we have an episode called uh, The 1920s, Take It or Leave It. And and in that, my, my co-host Kate and I go through all of these details of the 1920s research we did and talk about what we kept and what we tossed and what we changed because this is a big one for me. I I use a lot of real world stuff because I think that on some level our sort of our little monkey brains know that it know what's real. They mm. sense consistency and they they sense the solidity of it. So I mean, you know, in the Isles of the Gods there's an enormous amount of sailing and that's something that I grew up doing and, you know, have have taught and done all my life. So I put a lot of that in to create a sense of reality, but I also did, you know, I looked at a lot of fashion. I looked at what was going on technology wise and yeah, much of it, I, I changed or tweaked or moved. But I think if you start with history, if you start with something that's consistent within itself, then you end up with a final product that, yeah, has that internal consistency Mm. And, you know, that as readers and, you know, and you and I, when we're readers, you don't always think "Mm, this feels a little uneven, but like some little part of you is like, "Mm, this isn't lining up like this, this world doesn't feel real. Mm. And, And you couldn't necessarily say why, but you know, it doesn't feel real. 
Do you think that's the most difficult thing about conjuring up a place that doesn't exist is just that grounding it enough that it feels real, like that your reader is is not going to have that sort of moment of, oh, no, this is there's not, something's not quite right here? Is that the most difficult aspect of it? I mean, I think it's kind of the greatest sin that a, an author can commit is to jolt the reader out of the book mm. because, you know, the reader is, it's a trustful. The reader is giving you something when they come into your book. They're agreeing to suspend disbelief. They're agreeing to wait and see what the rules are that you've set for your book and, you know, for your world. And if you let them down, if you, if you, you know, if they stage dive and you step to one side, then, you know, <laughs> memories along. But, you know, it, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I certainly have when I've been reading something and something happened in the book that I just thought, but why? You know, either I, you know, I don't know why that character did that, or I don't know why that exists in the world, or why is that the punishment, or whatever it is. And it's hard to get back in if you get back in at all. Yeah. Yeah. So keeping that sort of internal logic to your world and making sure that everything within that world lines up in that. Um, as you say, the consistency of that is is actually a, a, an incredibly difficult thing to do, particularly over how many words are in the Isles of the Gods? Uh, it ended up at 114,000, I yeah, think. Yeah, so it's a lot of words to make sure they're all sort of like, self, you know, nicely contained within that package. Do you do you think, um, like for me, like big pictures are, are always built on those, those tiny details, those telling details. What yeah. sort of details do you focus on to really bring those worlds home? That's a great question because description is not actually – you know, my my go-to in my first drafts. Mm. It's usually something that I will layer in after I, you know, when I'm revising, you know, after my first draft. My first draft is more sort of action and dialogue and, you know, some big feelings but not particularly well described, uh, just more getting it down on the page. And I then sort of come back to using sensory detail. So, you know, if the character's walking down the street, uh, I want to have, you know, music spilling out of an upstairs window and, you know, the puff of fresh bread coming out of a bakery window and I want to talk about the cobblestones beneath her feet and the crowd bustling around her and you can't, you know, you can't hit all five senses because, you know, it becomes purple prose pretty quickly. It becomes mm. this giant tangle of description that you can't escape from. But I think if you can find the right sensory detail, then uh, you can anchor people quite quickly. You know, I always say, uh, particularly to Aussie listeners, if I tell you to imagine walking into a fish and chip shop and getting hit in the air by like the hot air and the smell of frying, mm. you know, you, you're instantly there. Yep. Everyone knows that feeling. And yeah, if I can find the right the right little detail to plant someone in the moment and and I turn to all the senses to do that uh, and and then try to pick the right one then uh, I find people will hook in and and the reader then supplies all of the rest themselves yeah yeah the picture then builds within them as opposed to building on the page so to speak um I saw a very amusing reel of you this morning Amy uh, dancing <laughs> and <laughs> Which, oh, yes, which just brightened, right. 
brightened my day. It really did. But it sort of it it um, reminded me of the question of tropes, um, you know, mm-hmm. in in various genre fiction, um, and like how important are they in in a sort of YA fantasy novel? Like, how do you give the reader what they expect while also surprising them? I mean, I think tropes are important in in every single um, in every single category. I, I think, you know, YA fantasy, yes, but I think I'm I'm a bit of a crusader on behalf of the trope because mm. I think people mix up tropes and cliches, mm. and they you know they think just because something's cliched, you know, it's been done over and over in the same way, they think that a trope, you know, is equally undesirable. And no, a trope is a gang of misfits get together for a heist or, you know, a, you know, in my case, um, you know, one of the tropes is, you know, I guess you'd call it enemies to lovers. They start mm. out hating each other and, you know, slowly over the course of the book, they they get to know each other. There are big tropes like that. There are small tropes like only one bed, you know, the classic scene where they're going to have to yeah. share even though, you know, they don't oh, want no. to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I tropes bring us enormous pleasure because we all know what sorts of stories we like. And when we say that, what we mean is we know what tropes we like. And one of the reasons I think it's so important to write to them and to write to them well is because I cannot expect my reader to grapple with new concepts on every possible front. I can't expect them to meet five characters who are all, you know, completely unpredictable and also a world that they've never been to and also a kind of adventure that doesn't conform to any kind of structure they've ever seen before. I need to give them some stepping stones Mm. and that will allow them to then follow along with the book and do the work of learning all the other stuff I'm trying to teach them and get them to, to grab. So you know, one of our characters is is Prince Leander, and when we meet him, he is, you know, that classic playboy prince who takes nothing seriously and he's, you know, charming everybody and dancing through life and there are no consequences for him for anything. And, like, is that who he is? No, of course that's not who he is because we also know that that trope usually carries with it. There's going to be a vulnerability underneath. There's going to be more to him than than we realised. But... By calling on that early, I don't have to, you know, spend pages and pages laying all of that out for readers. I just have him act like that guy and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, it's this guy, got it. And I understand that there's a way that that could sound like lazy writing, but I actually think of it more as it's a collaboration with the reader. And, you know, it's it's like if, um, I don't know, say I'm telling you how to, how to cook something and I'm making this example up on the fly, but, you know, say I say to you, okay, caramelize some onions and then, you know, beat some eggs and sort of fold in some sugar. I don't know what that recipe is that I'm talking about, but, (laughs) you know, I don't say to you, okay, get the onions, take the skins off the outside, chop them up. Here's how you do it. Yeah. You know, then get some sugar and some balsamic or, you know, however you're going to caramelize them. I say caramelized onions and you're like, okay, I got it. I know, I know how to do that. Yeah. And for me, that's what tropes are. It's yeah. I am, you know, don't worry, there'll be plenty of originality in my recipe. But some of these things are base ingredients that we are used to, and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> I like it. 
Um, that was a now, very extended cooking metaphor that I didn't I know we were it. embarking I, on. It was, it, was, it was good. I feel like we ended up with a light, fluffy sponge at the end of that, even with balsamic <laughs> and caramelised onions. Um, now, your publishing track record is, is really impressive, like 19 books, seemingly one hit after another. What are the processes that you put in place to be able to produce, and we're back to that word um, consistency here, um, such a consistent sort of high-quality output? It, oh, it's very. The answer is very boring. Honestly, yeah, but boring is boring is real. So yeah, uh, yeah. the an, the answer is I get up and I go to work every day. I mean, I yeah. have, you know, I suppose the background, and I think this is so so important to say out loud and in public as many times as possible. I am a full time author, and my husband is a full time dad. So yeah. I have the kind of support that usually you only see men get in most industries, yeah. uh, which is a spouse who does the childcare. And I also have, you know, the luxury of writing full time. And, you know, I didn't for the first several books of my career. That's something that came later. But I never want anyone to see what I am writing and think, well, if she can do it, I should be able to do it too. Like, probably not. Unless you've got what I've got, probably not. Don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, the answer is I get up every day and I go to work because, you know, as as you know, when we sign a contract to write a book, the draft may not be due for six months or a year, which is exactly when someone will find out that you weren't doing any work. So, <laughs> you know, you could get away with not doing anything for a really long time and I just think I can't afford to break the seal on that one because yeah, <laughs> I might because... never start again. <laughs> so... You know, I, I start with my deadlines and I break them down into a whole lot of milestones and I know what I need to do each day in order to to get there because I'm one of those people who has quite a lot of trouble stopping. I have trouble feeling like I've done enough for the day. Right. And so for me, you know, knowing that, well, I'd like to be at 20,000 words by that date and that means, you know, if I can just get 1,500 a day done, then I'll get there. That allows me at the end of the day to say, I have done everything I need to do to hit my goals. Stop. So that what helps about, me. What about the original ideas? Like you, how do you know which ideas are going to work and which won't? Like are you just constant, like you, you're obviously not sitting around waiting for the muse to show up. Um, you you wouldn't be able to kind of have that sort of consistency that you have if you were sort of like, oh, yeah, I'll have another idea at some point, I'm sure. Um, are you sort of like, are you consistently also working at that end of it, like of the sort of creative end of it, of coming up with those ideas in the first place? Oh, yeah, there's definitely, I have a bunch of ideas at different stages. So mm -hmm. at the moment, I am working on the sequel to The Isles of the Gods. And I'm working on uh, my next novel with Megan Spooner, which is, um, we've we've sold it. So we're, we're working hard on it. Uh, but I, I think it'll probably be a, um, a late 2024, early 2025 book. And then I'm busy figuring out what are going to be the next things I write and and look to sell to my publishers. So one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is an adult historical, and I'm already deep in research for that and, and have been for quite some time even. And I've got really just the roughest outline of, of who the characters are so I can start researching them. And then I suppose next in the production line behind that is I've got a YA book that at this point, I was about to say I'm not doing much for, but that's not really true. I have a sense of what the plot is. And so I am starting to 
watch movies that have that kind of plot and just sort of gather little twigs for my nest that relate to that plot so that when I turn my mind to it, I'm not starting from scratch. But so sort took- of, you know, one out of ten effort on that book at the moment because I'm not writing it <laughs> and I'm not I'm not outlining it. But it, but it is a one out of ten. It's It's not going to be a standing start. So you talk about gathering twigs for your nest um, and sort of watching movies and are these the kinds of things that you do to feed your creativity so that you're, you know, able to consistently have ideas, you know, for that pipeline, so to speak, of of, of books going forward? Yeah, I think I, I have my ideas kind of list is incredibly low tech. It's a, a draft email in my Gmail uh, and it's just full of one-liner ideas that sort of come to me at various points or not even... I mean, not like book ideas, like maybe moments or scenes or something. And it's in my Gmail because that way I can just open it on my phone and add a line. But I suppose, yeah, I I like to do sort of, you know, the basic stuff. I, I read a lot. I, I treat reading as a part of my job and I make sure that I'm always, I've usually got at least a paper book and an audio book on the go. I... You know, I try to do things like sort of going to exhibitions at museums or just going places I haven't been. Travel has always been a huge part of getting inspired for me, going places and learning about, you know, it mightn't be, you know, it's not something that you necessarily want to borrow from their culture, but it might just be a moment in a story that you hear, you know. I um, When we were in South Korea many, many years ago, we were... Uh, visiting some graves and there was one, you know, and this is something that I've I've seen in China and that I've read about in Egypt and lots of other places, but it was a grave where a bunch of um, retainers had been buried along with the royal who was inside. And I was talking to the museum guide and, you know, saying like, was this an honour or, you know, did they volunteer or did they get voluntold that they were going into this <laughs> into this tomb as well? Um and he's, he was saying, oh, look, it was a mix. And so I started to think, oh, I wonder what would happen if you ran away. Like, what story would that be? Yeah. You know, what? What? It, because, you know, he was saying, oh, it was, you know, for the good fortune of the kingdom, you had to sacrifice your life. And I'm like, so what if you didn't? And that was true. And the kingdom did start to come to pieces. Like, hmm. And that's that's literally the whole of that idea right now. And that may be the whole of that idea forever. I don't know. But maybe one day I'll get another little twig and add it's it and it will start idea, to get though. bigger. I like it. Yeah, right. And I've got, I mean, there's a bazillion of those, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they they eventually sort of gather enough steam that, you know, they they hit a critical mass. They become something. And that's when you start paying real attention to them. Once you've got enough twigs in there to actually make it look like something, you can start yeah. to think about what it, you know, what the end product might be. Are you yeah. um how do you know at that point, like at what point do you you, because you're writing across, you know, YA and MG, you've got an adult historical on the go. How do you know where a character or a world, that first spark, you know, sits on the shelf? Are you always thinking, you know, that, oh, this is going to be YA or, oh, this is going to be MG? Or does it sort of like um, as the twigs start to build, does it become mm. clearer? That's a great question. It's not something I give a lot of conscious thought to. I obviously must be thinking about it on some level. But, you know, although YA isn't solely governed by the age of the protagonist, it is a factor. And I think often I I do know very early who the protagonist will be. Mm. And so that will tell me, you know, for instance, with Ice Wolves or The World Between Blinks, you know, I knew for sure 
that these kids were like 11, 12 years old. So we knew that we were writing a middle grade. With the Isles of the Gods, it was always for me a book about a group of of teenagers in their late teens because what it really was was, you know, a book about deciding who you're going to be, that each one of them over the course of the book has to has to come to a moment where they have to stand up and say, this is who I'm going to be and this is what I'm going to stand for and this is what I'm prepared to sacrifice to make it happen. Mm. And for me, you know, YA is it is the literature of transformation. It's it's the literature of making yourself and remaking yourself. I think that's why adults read it in part because adults actually remake themselves multiple times over their lives as well. Yeah. You know, you when you become a new parent, when you get divorced, when you get a new job, you know, all all kinds of moments for adults to transform as well, but for me YA is about that first really big transformation and this was clearly a story about that and so that's I think, you know, it was clear to me that's what it would be. Uh the the adult that I'm working on, which is going to be the first adult that I've written, uh the range of characters presented themselves really early and most of them were adults. So that yeah you know, that made that pretty clear. I did yeah. pause and think, could this be, you know, could this be YA because that's what I write? But, you know, the answer was no. Yeah. So, you know, like I know that, you know, during you've actually had COVID and then you had long COVID. And as someone who is, you know, consistently sort of, you know, producing work, did you manage mm. to write during that time or did you sort of have pressure of deadlines? I mean, how, how, when we speak of transformation, was there mm. anything in that experience that was transformative for you? No, not really. It was just dreadful, to be yeah. honest. Um, it was it was the first three or four months I couldn't work at all. I just had to put my out-of-office on. Um, and, you know, like as you say, I'm known within publishing as being someone who's very consistent and who who will always find a way to write because I love it. Like yeah. when I have free time, what I do is write. You know, I've, I sold the Ice Wolves trilogy because I was left unattended for a month. All my books were on the on the um, desk of a, a co-author or an editor and I had nothing to do, so I sold a trilogy. I love writing. <laughs> but for three or four months, I just I simply couldn't work at all, and then for another three or four months, I was just very very slow. Uh, and no, it was just it was brain fog. It was extreme physical exhaustion. It was any time I tried to do anything that pushed the boundaries, I would just end up in bed for days. And you know, yeah, the, the, it wasn't it wasn't educational. It wasn't transformative. It wasn't sort of there wasn't a silver lining. I have to be honest. It was just awful awful slog and just yeah. waiting and not knowing if my brain was going to come back. Like I couldn't remember words. My vocab was was gone. And for so, someone who you know, carries their whole book in their head, that must have been mm-hmm. um, a fairly awful experience for you. Yeah. Do you um do you approach things differently at all now? Like do you take more like are you are you sort of being gentler on yourself at all or not really? I mean look I I've always been fairly gentle on myself in that I I don't buy at all into the myth of the suffering artist. Mm. I think I was, I was about to say something that might have got a language warning on your podcast, but <laughs> I think I think that's rubbish. Yes, uh, we'll say uh, I I'm all for kind of joyful creation, and 
I think that all of us do better work when we're feeling good than when we're being, you know, yelled at and hit with sticks. And that includes by ourselves. So I've always, I'm a big believer in working hard and I'm a big believer in rest and play as well. I, I think everyone in the world should read, um, a book called Rest by Alex, uh, Sujung Kim Pang, which talks about, you know, one, how much better you perform when you rest, but also just how much happier you are and how much better life is and that that's its own end. Yeah. So I what what I'm really enjoying now is I've been able to get back to the things that make me happy, going for yeah. long walks, reading books, hiking, you know, getting out and exploring again. That has been as restorative as having my energy back. Excellent. Now, I just want to touch briefly on co-authoring because you've actually, you know, done that with several different people. Um, mm. What do you think is the key to making a writing partnership work? I think it is caring about each other more than you care about any book. And if you take care of each other, then the book will be, actually be fine. Right. I think that and, – and that was wisdom that I got from um, – two authors called Ellen Kushner and Delia Sherman back in 2010. Uh, Meg and I wanted to write these Broken Stars together, but we were worried that we would have a fight and, mm. that you know, that would ruin the friendship. And so we saw Ellen and Delia speak on a panel about co-authoring and we thought, well, these ladies managed not only to co-author but to remain married to one another. So <laughs> they've got it Surely we out. can Let's- do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so we went up to them afterwards and they sort of looked at us like they didn't quite understand the question. Then they said, well, dears, you just care about each other more than you care about the book. And if you take care of each other, the book will take care of itself. Hmm. And, you know, Ellen and Delia, I, I call them my story godmothers. I still buy them lunch whenever I'm in New York because, you know, they, they launched my writing career with that advice. But I think it's true. I think, you know, when I whether I'm writing with Meg or Jay or Ryan, you're writing with that person because you like their voice and mm. so you don't want to drown them out. You don't want to impose yours over them. Mm. You value and enjoy what they bring to the book and you want them to be having a good time. And if you, you know, if you both take care of each other, the book will, yeah, the book will unfold. So do you have to let go of some of your, like, a, like let's have a real moment here. There must be like mm-hmm. some moment where you've had a favourite idea that you've had to let go of in order to make a book work or a partnership work? I mean, never without being convinced that what we were doing was better. Better, yeah. Like, I mean, I think even when you draft by yourself, you have to do that all the time. Like, you know, pour one out for Dante, my hot bodyguard, who I had to cut from the Isles of the Gods because being hot just wasn't enough. Will he get his own Uh, book later, though? Like, do your favourite ideas roll out somewhere else? I whispered that to him as I cut him. <laughs> it's like, you'll get your own story one day, Dante. I'm, I'm sorry. just putting you on ice, dude. It's okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not forever. It's just for now. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I have a policy with my co-authors that we don't go forward till we agree. And that might mean that we got to go through, you know, 20 iterations of an idea before we hit one where we both go, yep, that's, that's it. it. That's better than anything that I had. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. All right. Well, that I think concludes our wonderful chat today. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on Words and Nerds. Where it's um, always such a pleasure. Where, where are we going to find you online, Amy? Apart from dancing on Instagram, where else will we find you? 
Uh, well, look, the I suppose the place I would point people to first and foremost is uh, if they head to my website, which is amykoffman.com, they can sign up for my newsletter, which is it's a monthly letter that I write to readers and I talk about, you know, what I'm working on and how I'm approaching my creativity that month. And, you know, essentially if you like this chat, then boy, you're going to like that. <laughs> and, you know, I talk about giveaways and events and stuff as well. Uh, they can also find me on Instagram at Amy Kaufman author, and they can find me on my podcasts. Uh, Amy Kaufman on writing is a craft of writing podcast and pub dates is a behind the scenes look following the the publication journey of uh, my book and of um, Kate Armstrong's book Nightbirds. Fantastic and you can find me at alisontait.com a-l-l-i-s-o-n-t-a-i-t.com. Thank you Words and Nerds listeners we've very much enjoyed our takeover today. 